You're listening to the Moody Mommies Podcast. Audio warning. You may or may not hear kids screaming and yelling in the background. Or us screaming or yelling at them to keep it together. And I'm Jessica. What are we going to talk about today, Jess? Well, today we are going to be talking to an IEP provider. Is that what he... We're going to talk about IEPs, guys. (laughs) And if you don't know what it is, you should definitely listen to this episode because I didn't know what it was until I went to this meeting. So this is all of the information that I was informed of at the meeting. So listen in. All right, so Nick, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, Sure thing. Uh, My name is Nick Munoz. I am an advocate with Mental Health Advocacy Services. Nice. So I wanted to have you on today so you can share with our listeners what an IEP is, the importance of knowing what it is, and everything you have for us today. So really to start with, uh, an important part we like to highlight is just... um, First, that a lot of the, the law is actually federal law. And that's a good thing. That means, truthfully, wherever you go, as long as you're still in the United States, a lot of what I'm about to tell the audience will still apply. Okay. Um, there might be slight uh, variations depending on state, um, but for the most part, what I tell you will be a nice baseline to go, on, to go off of. Um, so first, it's kind of the, the law itself is called the Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act. Uh, it's called IDEA for short. And this is where the IEP language actually comes from. Um, and just out the bat, IEP stands for Individualized Education Program. Some people will call it plan. Regardless of what you call it, that's what we're talking about. It's a legal document that outlines all the resources, accommodations, as well as any modifications that your child will receive if eligible for special education. So as I've outlined, the, the basic the basic tenet of IDEA, the federal law, is to ensure that every student who's eligible receives what we call FAPE, which is free, appropriate public education. Most of the time where parents are going to have a little bit more trouble or where there's going to be disagreement in general is going to be on on that appropriate part, right? And this is talking about, um, you know, what services or accommodations or, or what the child is going to need exactly. So the big thing to highlight, uh, since we're going to talk specifically about IEPs, is this is going to go from as soon as preschool all the way up until 22 in some instances. Uh, And again here, a big thing I do like to highlight, and a big important part, is that special education services can look very different, and they often do look widely different for each student. Um, the reason the IEP is called that, you know, that, that I is the very important part. It's individualized. So a lot of times there will be categories under which you will be eligible for special education. And a big thing we like to emphasize with those categories is it's not so much that they do not matter, 
Um, but oftentimes, since the IEP will be individualized for each student anyways, um, the eligibility kind of loses some strength, right? Um, and I'll go over the eligibility a little bit more in a second. Um, but at first, first I do want to give um, kind of an outline of, of what those services could look like. Because as I mentioned, they could be widely different for each student. Um, it could be as simple as uh, some pull-out time, maybe 45 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe a half hour, um, to work on speech. Maybe the student uh, does not speak clearly, and you have pull-out services uh, where they're literally going to take the student out of class for maybe a little bit, like the time that I'd specified earlier, um, to kind of work on that, right? And the, the goal would be to have them speak clearer, and obviously the speech pathologist would have a different set of techniques to work on that. It can be, they can have what's called a behavior plan. Uh, some, some students, depending on their eligibility or their disability or how heavily impacted they are by that, um, may have behaviors that present. Uh, this can be the case if there's ADHD or autism or really anything like that, uh, any kind of social interaction that they're having trouble with that's causing behaviors. Uh, one service is they create what's called a behavior plan, and that sounds just like what it sounds like. It's a plan to kind of replace that uh, behavior that we don't want with maybe more positive behavior, right? For instance, if they're getting frustrated because they're having a difficult time speaking and maybe they throw things because they're frustrated, we would want to change that behavior uh, or kind of substitute it, right? And that's what the behavior plan would do. Um, but the main point of that is both of those things look very different. The child could have both of them. Uh, and the, the main goal is to give the child what they need, right? Um, so I want to circle back to eligibility now. And uh, I won't go over each and every eligibility because I often find that it gives the, the wrong idea uh, that if what, I've, what my child is presenting is not listed here specifically, uh, they will not qualify. So, and I'll get into why that. But some common ones that we see, autism, uh, a specific learning disability, intellectual disability, uh, speech or language impairment, uh, often uh, deaf or hard of hearing, uh, can be one of them as well. But my point being is that uh, dyslexia, for example, would not be listed in those 13 eligibilities. Um, however, that would be covered under a specific learning disability. Um, just like ADHD isn't specifically mentioned in the federal law, but it would be covered under what's called an other health impairment. Um, so it's not so much uh, these 13 are the only thing. There are other uh, disabilities or problems that could that can fit into there uh, or be presented and fall into another category so the main thing for eligibility is this it's kind of like a two-pronged test one the child will have to have one of those disabilities listed in there or something that fits into there or is affecting them in a similar way and that disability the big one here is that second part the disability must adversely affect their the child's ability to access their education, right? And that's just the easy way to say there is just there's a problem with their academic or social development as a result of their disability. So that's really what's going to um, kind of trigger these services, right? And this can present itself in, in many ways, but often it's, it's the easy case is one where my child is struggling academically, right? Or behaviors are presenting in such a way that they're having difficulty learning. And where would the family go to get, um, like, what's the word, to get, like, put into a category? Absolutely. 
So, and, and that's another thing that I, that I do want to stress is that um, while we use language like categories and labels and things like that, that is not what this law is attempting to do, right? It's, it's just a function of the law to have a category, but yeah. in no way is that going to stigmatize the child or have them be, you know, this is an IEP child or this is a child. Because as we mentioned, they could remain in their regular classroom and just be pulled out for services. Um, but the basic process starts with what we call assessments, evaluation, basically just testing the child, right? So the, just a quick overview of that process would be that the assessment would be initiated, whether by parent or by school. The assessment would be done, so the child would be tested. If, and, and then you would have what's called an IEP meeting, which is kind of what it sounds like. It's a meeting to go over and create that plan if they are eligible for services. So to answer your question more directly, um, if the parent does believe that there is an issue learning that may be as a result of a disability, what they would do is they would request from the school um, that the child be assessed. Okay. So oftentimes the very practical advice with that is please, please, please do everything in writing. I will probably say that multiple times over the course of this, and it will probably be the answer to a lot of those questions, is please do so in writing. It can be, you can write it in English, you can write it in Spanish, you can write it in whatever language you want, to be honest, uh, and present that to the school. And it, it's not very complicated, doesn't need to be a huge formal letter, but doing it in writing is, is the best practice there. And all it needs to say is, you know, you can address it just like a letter, have your child's name, their date of birth, so that they know exactly who they're talking about. Um, and just put in plain English, as anyone would, it doesn't need to be fancy of just you know, I would like my child assessed for special education services or something of that nature. And then kind of the next couple sentences can explain why, right? They're having trouble reading because of something, 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 whether they have, sometimes parents will have an official diagnosis, whether it be from the doctor or something of that nature. And they want to see, okay, well, since I have this official diagnosis, now my next question is maybe that's why he's struggling or she is struggling um, you know, with schooling, as as we've seen so far. Um, so that's really what they would do. It would just be a plain letter um, presented to the school. We often say, be sure to get a copy of that. If you can get them to stamp it received or some kind of proof that they've received it, that is the ideal situation, uh, mostly because there are procedures that they need to follow and it becomes a lot easier, or rather it's a lot more difficult to hold them to that if I don't have proof, right? When they come to us and they have the letter stamped from them two months ago saying that they, they were requesting assessments, they're going to be in a lot, the client will be in a lot better position than if they had only done that ver verbally and then we don't have proof, right? Yeah. Um, so the big part about that is the, the timelines associated with that. Once they go and put that in writing, the school or the district rather has 15 days to respond then they're either going to say yes, and they'll give you what's called an assessment plan, which, again, is kind of what it sounds like. It's just going to be, a, sometimes it can be even just one document, maybe front, front and back printed on it, that kind of outlines what assessments they're going to do. And that, that is because they can't assess without your consent. So even though you are asking for it, if they do agree to it, there is that extra formality of having you then sign the actual plan that gives them consent to assess the child. So you'll put the plan in, or you'll request the assessment. They'll give you a page back that says, you know, can you please consent to these following assessments? 
you want to make sure that those assessments are what you are identifying a problem with, right? If you are saying my child is having a speech problem and they don't have a speech assessment, obviously that that's going to be a problem, right? You want to bring that up to their attention. Maybe that was just an oversight on their site, or maybe they have a reason why they don't want to assess for speech. The main thing is you want to figure that out before you kind of sign and start everything, because at that point you would be missing kind of the reason you brought the uh, the request in the first place, right? Right. Um, so outside of that, the the last big part of that assessment chunk is you put in that assessment. They have 15 days to respond to give you that assessment plan or give you a written response why they're not going to do that. Let's say for this instance, they've given you the assessment plan from the day you sign that. So let's say they give it to you that day and you, you sign it that day and return it to them. The district will have 60 days to actually complete that testing. All right. So in just to give a rough thing, you know, you're, you're looking at about two and, and some change before you actually get all the testing done. Yes, yeah, so and and you're ready to have that meeting right uh, so that's something that we want to encourage your parents to do you know as soon as you see any kind of learning problem or any kind of um, issue that the child is having you know if you think that it is as a result of a disability or as a result of any kind of learning problem that they're having um, that you kind of act quickly uh, because early intervention is obviously going to be key here uh, and can can really result in in great results with early intervention uh, yeah, because what the school year is about nine months. So if you're doing all the testing and everything, that's almost like a third of the way through the school year where they're still struggling without any help. Right. Exactly. And and we are maxing out timelines there. But even assuming that there is no delay, mm -hmm. that's basically the point in a nutshell is that you are taking about a third of the year um, to then get to a meeting in which we're going to s decide what services. And as time goes on, you may need to change those services. So it's really about that. It, it is going to take about a third of that year um, to get sitting to get to the point where you're sitting down with the full testing done, all the data that we need to make that decision of what that child is going to need uh, to benefit from their education. And we want to do that as soon as possible because it allows more time to then make further adjustments. Very, very rarely are we going to get everything they need, especially as the child grows older and older. They may need more adjustment. But the point being, you want to have that plan sooner than later. Yeah, and I heard you mention um, early intervention, and I kind of read that somewhere as like starting even before preschool. So they do have um, services before preschool. Now it's a little bit separate from the IEP, so I don't want to distract too much from okay. that. Um, but it'll usually take place in, in regional centers, which will follow a similar. Um, pattern here where you would request an assessment through them and the services would be through them but from preschool onward so from three onward it would be um, through the preschool and through the district more specifically um, but yes there are um, I guess earlier earlier services, yeah. for lack of a better <laughs> three, word three is pretty small still <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's but that's still a thing, right? You could still, you know, at three, they are growing really fast, right? They're always growing really fast from zero to forever, it feels like. Mm -hmm. um, but especially so when they're very young. So that's why that early intervention uh, can be very helpful because they, they are adjusting and learning very quickly. That you want to get those services in there quick so that you can build new, either new habits or learn how to adapt to any problem they're having, right? Mm -hmm. Around uh, around what age do you think that families typically 
reach out for these kind of things because I feel like for the preschoolers and kindergarten, a lot of the teachers kind of put it to, well, they're still small and they're still learning how to sit still and like you know when do they really start feeling like no this is a problem like with their hearing or with their if it's ADD or whatever behavior speech behavior and speech Uh, yeah I think that's a great question because and unfortunately maybe this isn't going to be a super satisfying answer because each each child is going to be very different right there is that um, very generalized version that yes find me a four-year-old that likes to sit still right mm-hmm. um and but at the same time there are going to be certain landmarks for children whether it be like if we use speech as the example right you know if the if the kids in preschool maybe they're just got in and they're having a little bit of trouble with words maybe we can write that off to oh, okay well maybe they're just a little bit more of a late bloomer you know so at some point it's going to be um you know watching it right if you if you're uncomfortable with it or you think like, oh, you know, I really, it's, it seems like he's not quite formulating those words. It, it seems like she's not quite speaking like the rest of her class, right? Um, at that point, you really can go through with that assessment process. But I think the point that you made is a, is one I, I do want to flag as well, is often parents will, will get that feedback, right? Oh, well, you know, they are four, so mm-hmm. sometimes we hit each other. And... Um, you know, it's not that children won't act up or they won't, but, but I think the, the main difference would be the repeated action with not like a disregard to the consequence, but most children will learn eventually, right? Uh, most children will kind of get the program, what's going on, or most children, their speech will develop a little bit more as, as they hear more. But because they are so young, that's kind of the, the troublesome part of it, uh, particularly with like speech. I use this as an example because it kind of shows that it's not so straightforward is maybe a child is having a problem with language uh, we might think oh that's that's like his his or her output you know she's having a difficulty saying words or forming words um, but it could also be that she's she's having a difficult time hearing yeah um, I know somebody often, that that happened to see ex- exactly so that's why Uh, early intervention, even if you are unsure, but you kind of just, and it's not to say do it on a whim, but if you've tracked it for a little while and you think, well, I'm not really seeing that improvement that the teacher kept promised me or that I I would have expected to see, the the bar for the assessment is is a suspicion um, that it's affecting their their education, not 100% I know for a fact. So suspicion is kind of a low bar and and we want to encourage to you know, if they have that concern, to bring that up there. That way, one, you can get documented that you are trying this process. And a lot of times, when you do it in writing and things of that nature, it will get a more formalized response rather than a teacher. If you say verbally, you know, I think they might need something, and the teacher goes, well, you know, he, he did just start kindergarten, so possibly he's just a late bloomer, or, or whatever those, those standard kind of answers are. Um, you know, and it's not to say that the district is, is being evil or anything of that nature. They may genuinely think, well, well, he, that happens a lot, and then they learn to speak correctly, and it's not really a big deal, right? But if, if now it's been a whole other year and, and no progress has been made, I think that would be the really easy case, right? Well, you need to go get that assessment because now you've documented for a whole school year that there was some sort of issue, and you're continually being told, you know, um, oh, it's fine. 
right? But mm -hmm. in your eyes, you're not seeing any progress. So it's because of that that I think it becomes difficult for the parents, and and oftentimes that's why it'll it'll vary a lot. You'll see a kid who had speech issues, and the parent said, "I was talking about this in preschool, and now the kid's in the second grade, you know, and now they're calling us, right? And they're saying, well, it's been a, such a long time, um, or all the way to you know, this kid is in middle school now and he's still having trouble speaking, right? Um, so I think that that age for that various reasons, for those various reasons, it can really range. And oftentimes it, it comes up to how, how involved the parent is going to be and how willing a parent is going to be to take the answer that the school gives you because sometimes it's assumed that, well, the school is looking out for me. And again, it's not that they're not, but sometimes they don't see your child in the same light that you do, especially as they get older and there's more children involved and there's bigger schools. Um, oftentimes that's why we want to encourage early intervention as so that they don't get lost in the giant schools, especially depending on areas. Some schools can be very, very big and um, it becomes easy to look past um, any learning issues that a, that a child is having. So as uh, another thing I want to touch on as far as the assessment goes, so like I said, It'll be done in 60 days, and then after that, if you disagree with the assessment, again, I'll, I will constantly use speech as an example just because it is such a common thing. Mm -hmm. Let's say the, the school, because the school evaluates, right? You're asking the school to evaluate, not some other party. So in the interest of them possibly having a self-interest, the law allows the parent to request what's called an independent educational evaluation. Sometimes this will be referred to as an IEE for short. Think of it just like a second opinion. You're getting a third party to run a similar assessment. And again, if you do request these, we often want that to be done in writing to the school. And then the school has two choices. And it's either to fund that evaluation by a third party, or what they will do is they'll file for due process, which is an administrative hearing, basically in disagreement. Um, I can't say every single time, but most of the time, or it often is the case that if they are going, they're willing to fund it, they will just fund it and it's not going to be a huge deal. Um, but it is a right that they have. And if they do fund it and you do get that uh, third party assessment, um, they by law have to take that into consideration. Oftentimes you will have another meeting and they will go over it and you will have you know, evidence from an outside party, someone who's not the district, that you can then compare to both results, try to figure out. Um, where there's anything that was missed and so on and so forth um, when you're going forward because you are already in disagreement because generally if that um, assessment is coming back saying they're not eligible for special education services obviously the parent was thinking otherwise uh, but again that's also a point in which the parent could say well school said nothing's wrong and, and the school could be right school could also be wrong but oftentimes depending on the parent if they hear that from the school psychologist, they assume, well, that's the end of that, right? And then since I've talked about it a lot, I want to give a little bit more insight into the actual meeting, what we'll call the IEP meeting. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, because I know this can be kind of more contentious and kind of mysterious even to some people. Um, so essentially the meeting is it's it's typically in the administrative office of some sort in, in the school. And it'll include the parent, you know, the principal or some type of administrator, the therapist or the, or the person that actually did the evaluation or that tested the child, uh, the GE teacher, so the general education teacher, 
the special education teacher, and even a translator if necessary. And one, I want to piggyback off that last point and say that you absolutely have a right as a parent to a translator. It's kind of bounces off your general right of participation. You have to be included in that meeting or they at least have to make a giant effort to include you. Um, you, you need to be there. It can't just be, okay, uh, we're going to have a meeting tomorrow and you can't make it, we'll have it without you. That's absolutely not okay. We want to encourage parents because you're, oftentimes it's the parent that brought this process up, right? They, they started with the school, they filled out that assessment request saying, I need my child assessed. They're often the ones that saw it first. Right, they spend the most child, the most time with their children. I, I mean, they really are experts on the children. Parents really are experts, and the like. The law kind of recognizes that, and that's why the parent has to be included in there, and their participation is paramount. Right, so part of that is having a translator. It makes no sense to go to a meeting in English if you're a monolingual Spanish speaker. You cannot participate. Right, so we often like to really advise, like I said, I'm going to say this a lot, to do that in writing. If parent knows that they need a translator, to get that in writing as soon as possible and submit it to the school, get them to stamp or receive. Again, so you have proof. So you can say, if, and, and believe me, it happens, when you show up that day and there's no translator, you, you have a lot of backbone there to say, look, this is absolutely unacceptable. I already put this in writing that I needed a translator. You're aware of it because maybe this is not my first IEP meeting. I've had my child has had an IEP since the first grade, and I'm in the seventh. He's in the seventh grade now, right? Um, because we really, that, that plain and simple, that parent cannot participate without that translator. So we really want to make it apparent that if that is necessary, let them know, and and to the point where you can say we can't hold this meeting. We need to reschedule because I absolutely cannot participate, uh, and try to get that worked out. Um, but the bigger point there as well is that there's going to be a lot of people at that meeting, or at least there's the potential to have a lot of people at the meeting that aren't the parent, right? So we often will encourage, you know, if, if you can bring your spouse, that's great. Um, just to have another person, even, even just to have another person to say the same exact thing, right? I also see those things. Sometimes the parent may even have, you know, the child's own therapist, um, because oftentimes it's not the case that these behaviors or these problems are only presenting themselves in school, right? Um, so you can bring the, the outside therapist, maybe that's seeing the child, again, to kind of talk directly to the other therapist, maybe that's there, or assessor, or the person that tests the child, you know, on that professional level about what they're seeing as well. The main point being kind of to even out that playing field rather than six people telling the parent one thing and the parent saying, well, that's kind of not what I see, so I'm a little confused. Um, but the main purpose of that meeting oftentimes is, is just going to be to determine the eligibility. So whether or not the student has is going to qualify for services, right? So they're going to discuss the assessment. So the test, they're going to go into the detail about the child's present levels basically where they are currently at, academically, socially, behaviorally, all those things, uh, kind of where they have any deficiencies or any troubles learning. Um, if they're eligible, they will create what we call what are just goals. So they're often academic goals. They can be behavioral goals. They can be social-emotional goals. 
They can be speech goals. You know, we can go on and on. Uh, and the main point of those goals is just is to target a deficiency, right? If they're having trouble reading, then a goal should be there for reading to get them up to level or to specifically tackle something they're having difficulty with. And, and that's part of, that's where the parent really, we encourage them to participate. Yes, there's lots of people there, but as you as the parent have a right to participate and you are the one that's going to know your child the best. You're going to know different things that maybe the school isn't going to see. Maybe even the teacher won't see. You see your child the most. You interact with your child the most. Bring that information to that meeting and let that be known. Let that be documented. That way we can get a full picture of your child not necessarily just the little snippets that everybody at the meeting sees. Um, without your participation, it's going to be a real incomplete picture of your child. And we want to encourage a complete picture. That way we can get every service that the child needs um, going forward, right? Yeah, because, I mean, even like a, let's say, a typical learning developed child, they are really different at school. You know, when we do our little yearly or bi-yearly meetings it's just like okay well she doesn't sit still for this this and this maybe you can try doing this with her i'm like well we do do all that and she's fine at home it's you know it's just you're, she's in a different setting so she's gonna act differently absolutely absolutely and and that's another big thing to highlight um just because i think sometimes it is said incorrectly unfortunately to parents is that when i'm talking specifically about the special education services through the iep it really is going to apply to school, right? Yeah. So if you are having trouble at home, um, if there is no crossover to school, that unfortunately is, is not what these services are designed to do. While they will often have crossover, right? If we're doing great here in school, sometimes that will cross over, but also sometimes it will not. So you will get people who, there's no way my child did that, but just like you said, different setting around different people. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a teacher involved, like it's school, it's not home and vice versa. Right. Yeah. So we really want to document and emphasize to parents um, that these services are mainly designed for educational settings. Right. It's not necessarily despite crossover, it's not necessarily it isn't designed to service home. Right. Um, and then um, some important uh, timelines when you do actually have an IEP. So child's been assessed determined eligible, you have services, you now have that huge IEP document, which can be 20, 30 pages, you know, uh, front and back, this giant thing, it looks hectic, every district could look slightly different. Um, but some main things to point out about that physical IEP is one, that is absolutely a legal contract between you and the school. Uh, that's what you've agreed to. So it's very important, again, to get that translated if you need it, make sure you understand it. Uh, before signing because after that's in effect you you know those are the services your child's going to receive until agreed otherwise um, to go along with that every year they will have what's called an annual IEP and again this is just kind of think of it like an update so every year they are required by law to update the IEP see where there's been progress see where there has not been progress discuss why and discuss any necessary adjustments right so it's kind of like a checkup Every three years, uh, they'll have what's called a triennial, and that is kind of like starting the process again, but not not really, because they'll do a comprehensive evaluation. And again, it's like a checkup, but with actual tests, not just off what we've seen, right? And again, we're they're making sure, are they still eligible? Do they have different eligibilities now? Uh, are there problems there that we didn't see the first time? Again, like we mentioned, as the children age quickly, 
maybe certain problems we were able to overlook or we missed because they were just so young, let's say. And that's kind of to, to catch those things, right? The four-year-old who can't sit still is now the seven-year-old who actually never sits still, right? Mm-hmm. And now we can, okay, well, maybe they need a behavior plan because it's not just, oh, he's four, oh, she's four and likes to run around. It's, oh, he's just, they're seven and they absolutely don't, you know, don't follow directions or, or whatever the, the necessary update is, right? Um, the other very important thing that I like to stress to parents is that once you actually have that IEP and it is in place, that if at any time something happens, maybe there's a, oftentimes it's something like this, like there's a behavior that we've never seen before. What was that? Well, I don't know what's going on. In if you hold, if you request an IEP in 30 days, they have to hold a meeting. So ideally, if something like that were to happen, maybe there was a huge behavior or there was a giant outburst that we've never seen before. What would make sense is you should hold, the school should itself hold the IEP, but oftentimes that's not always the case. So when parent is like, this is the third time I've been called to school for something that my daughter did, uh, I, you know, I can't come here picking him up, picking my daughter up every day, and you're telling me that they're in the office for a couple hours. That's stuff that's interfering with school time, right? It's particularly a very young children when they maybe only go half day or have limited uh, time, you're talking about an hour or two in the office, that's a significant amount of school time. So when it, when you see problems like that, or, or oftentimes children will tell you, right, you'll ask them just talking nonchalant, um, you know, oh, were you pulled out for speech today? And they go, no. You go, well, why not? Oh, I haven't been pulled out for, I don't know how long. I don't remember the last time. At any time, you can call that IEP. And again, we want to do that in writing, call that meeting to figure out what's happening, right? Why is my child not being pulled out for speech for who knows how long, right? You want to get down to those problems. That way you figure them out quickly. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't always figure them out quickly. But as soon as we do, the law is there to say, if parent requests that meeting, you have 30 days to hold that meeting. Again, not immediate, but it is one of those things that we if we keep things in writing, we can make sure that timeline is not maxed out or ignored and so on and so forth, right? And again, it can just be a simple request. My child saying they're not being pulled out for speech. I'd like an IEP meeting to discuss what's going on, right? Um, the other thing about actually having that IEP is if you move, the IEP will follow the child. So if you were to go to a different district, a different city, which would also be a different district, it's, it's often best practice for the, chi- for the parent to keep the child's IEP um, while the school should and, and does, but there's a time delay often. They'll send that IEP to the new district. We want to make sure that the parents have a copy in hand. That way they can walk that in with the kid and say, you know, here's he's going to be going here. Here's the IEP that he needs. That way they don't have an excuse of, oh, you know, we lost it or we didn't know. I definitely had horror stories where the kid transfers districts and now there's no IEP. There's no services for months at a time. Um, and that's kind of that practical way to combat that is just you have that IEP in hand. Because even though the district, by law, is going to be required to either make a new IEP or adopt the old one within 30 days, again, we we don't want to give them, we're just being extra safe, right, extra cautious. That way, if you notice any delay, there's no reason for that delay because I already gave you what my child needs. And kind of uh, on that, like I said, that IEP is a legal document. So that contract is broken. There can be consequences in that sense. Um, oftentimes, we can help parents, too, with this is just 
filing what's called a, a non-compliance complaint, um, which is just a big fancy way of saying you're not in compliance with the IEP. So you're not doing what we agreed to. Uh, you follow those with the California Department of Education. They do an investigation in 60 days and they will give the results either saying the district is in compliance so there's nothing wrong or they're out of compliance and they will issue some sort of creative or corrective action. So this can include, you know, um, new training for the, the school or the district. This can include some makeup time if they've missed school due to the various problems that they were having. Or let's say, like I said, they weren't pulling them out for speech. It had been a significant amount of time. You filed that complaint. It was found that they weren't getting pulled out. They might get what's called compensatory services to kind of make up time for the speech that 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 they missed. And again, this is a this is a complaint process the parent can do by themselves as well. Um, and it'll wrap itself up in about 60 days. Um, the, 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 the real thing that I want to kind of drive home um, through all of this <coughs> is, is that these services are absolutely free to anybody who's eligible. Oftentimes, parents feel as though they might be putting the district out or causing some type of burden uh, with these services, but there's money for it, and it, it is designed for students who need them, right? So parents shouldn't feel any pushback on, on that end. Um, the other big point that I've kind of highlighted out, but I want to really drive home is not to assume that the school is automatically going to offer your child every single thing that you think they need. And again, it's not because they are evil or they don't like you or things of that nature. Like I said, sometimes schools are very big and sometimes they, they may not have the money, um, but that's not necessarily a reason. That's actually not a valid reason, if that makes any sense. Uh, it cannot be only financially um, driven for their denial. If your child needs those services, your child is has a right to them. Um, the, the real big thing, too, that I keep hitting on is to do orally isn't going to be enough. Requesting these things by word of mouth or in person telling whoever you're telling is often not going to be enough. There are countless clients that call us saying, <clears throat> you know, I've been requesting this for a whole school year now. And they're going to call me, uh, you know, in September and say, I've been doing this since last September. The big problem often is they haven't done so in writing. It, it may sound like a very trivial, small step, but often putting that in writing is documenting it. And it really forces a response out of schools is what we found. Sometimes as simple as when they call, we give them that advice and and then the problem is solved. They, they have a response or the child is getting assessed. And you know the assessment might still say that they're not eligible, but now we have a parent that waited a whole school year and it's not their fault. I don't mean to blame them, um, but it's just if they could have that knowledge first, which is often why we do those presentations in the first place, and they can put that in writing. It's just kind of amazing how that changes. This, the district understands that they kind of know a little bit more than maybe the average parent. There's proof that they've received that. So in that way, the, the safeguards built into the law really help move things along. But the trick is you've got to put that in writing. And then that, that's really the, the biggest point that I like to drive home. It's just writing, writing, writing as much as you can. And outside that, uh, are there any specific things that maybe I didn't touch on that you'd like to know about or maybe some common things that you guys have heard about? I think it's really great that you're, you know, really pressing how important it is to put everything in writing because when this uh, talk was given at my daughter's school, a lot of parents were raising their hands, asking the woman that came, you know, over and over again, I've been complaining to my daughter, uh, to my daughter's teacher. You know, she has been having, my son has been having uh, speech problems for since the past year or my son or my daughter, whoever it was. And, and the woman just kept telling him, did you put it in writing? Did you ask for a child? You know, all of the things that you're making parents aware of right now, I think it's, it's really, really 
a great tool to have in your toolbox as a parent to be able to know you walk in there with guns loaded like hey I know what I'm talking <laughs> about here I put it in writing I gave you this request <laughs> on this date I turned it in you know so I, I think that's great because that was the problem at my daughter's school is they had been just verbally requesting these things with their teachers and they weren't finding any help with it. And we were already halfway through the school year and they still weren't being given the help that they needed. So it was really great that you guys came in and educated the parents about the right formality of how everything needs to be done. Uh, absolutely. And I, and I think it can, from the parent's point of view, it can seem like, you know, I, I told the teacher and she said, or he said that we'll take care of it. And it's not oftentimes that the teacher doesn't have the best of intentions or anything like that. Um, but maybe they went to the principal and the principal said, or the vice, the, you, typically the vice principal is the one that's in charge, but they went to the administrator and they, they expressed mom's concerns and the administrator maybe said, well, if nothing's in writing, you know, we, we don't have to move or maybe we'll monitor that. Like they don't need to give an official response, right? right. And that's really what we're kind of stressing is, is you want to make them do that. Even if the response is they're not eligible for X, Y, and Z reasons, you want to be there rather than, I don't know, I told the teacher and it's been six months and nothing's happened. I don't know what's going on. Exactly. Right? And that's really what we want to encourage parents to get to. E even if the answer is no, okay, then maybe now you can reach out to legal service agencies like, like us or somebody else to kind of move that process to that next step rather than, like you said, you know, they, they get six months in, they ask again, maybe now they do it. But again, like we said, it takes about a third of the year to get everything in place. You know, now we're almost to the end of the year, if not the end of the year. And it's the bottom line is it's been a whole school year and we still don't know if the child's eligible, right? And parent already noticed this concern. Uh, and nothing was happened. So yeah. that's really the the biggest thing I, I always tell people. If you don't remember anything I said, just request everything you want in <laughs> writing. Like, and that will, if you just take that away, you will be a hundred times better than you were at the beginning before I said anything. So, right. <laughs> do you know when these services started becoming available for parents? So I actually don't remember exactly when idea was passed. But I want to say it was sometime in the 70s. Okay. But, it, but even then, there was a lot of struggle with just, like I said, one, understanding that that was coming out or how this was going to work exactly, right? Because we still have those problems with children obtaining these services now, you know, X number of years after the legislation was passed. But I'm almost positive that it was around uh, maybe early to mid 70s or so um, have you ever worked with like a set of parents that were in denial about their child's assessment so absolutely uh, that will happen sometimes and and that's another reason um like like we had asked before about um you know how long can it take or what's the average time in which a, a, someone will get these services um, that can be a reason for that delay as well as maybe first of all the, the school the, the district itself actually has it is their responsibility under the law to find children it, it's actually called child find and it's exactly what it sounds like it's their responsibility to find any child in their catchment area or you know the neighborhood around the school um, identify them and give them the services they need. If they don't do that, they're actually out of compliance with 
um, with the federal law. And oftentimes it can, not oftentimes, but sometimes the, the school will approach the parent saying, we think your child may have a learning problem or a speech problem or, or whatever it may be. And that the parent will say, no, um, I don't think that's true. I, I think that everything's fine. This is not necessarily a concern for them. And, and that will often sometimes cause that delay. That's why we do really like to emphasize that, you know, these services are not something that are designed to hurt the child or stigmatize the child or take them away from everybody else. Their service is designed to bridge the gap of which they're having trouble with, right? Oftentimes, I, I like to almost describe them kind of like glasses, right? If, if I cannot see far without glasses, we want to try to not concern ourselves too much with, oh, well, I think I'll look silly with glasses. The goal is I want to be able to read the board, right? I want to be able to see the world around me. And we want to really focus on taking that stigma away to where it's not that my child has something wrong with them. It's that my child just needs a little bit of extra help in whatever services they are or whatever services we can design for them so that they can access their education just like anyone else. Um, one real big point I want to make about those services is actually the law favors what's called the least restrictive environment. I'm not sure if this has been talked about before here or anything like that, but essentially what that means is the law favors um, like a general education classroom, right? The law actually doesn't want to place the child in a more restrictive environment or an environment that is um, not a general education setting unless you absolutely have to. So the standard will be that they cannot benefit from their education in the general education before they do something like push them into a special day class which is a more restrictive setting, which is often smaller. And, um, you know, they stay in that class for the day. Typically, it's smaller, has oftentimes a different curriculum than they would be learning otherwise. And then um, just to kind of going forward with that, the next kind of level of restrictiveness is what's called a non-public school, uh, which is a which is a school specifically designed for children with, with disabilities. And oftentimes, they might even be more specific than that. They might be like, this is a school that kind of specializes in, in um, behavioral problems or autism or what whatever it may be. And I think a, uh, a thing that parents see is they think, oh, no, if my child is eligible for special education, that means they're going to pull them out and take them somewhere else. And that's that's not the goal, right? The goal is to keep them there in a general education setting as if nothing changed, but provide them support so that they can stay in that classroom. It doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, reasons to take them out of that classroom. They may not benefit from the general education classroom. But the main point is that the real goal is to keep them there rather than isolate them. We want to support them because studies and, and a lot of the science show that children uh, with disabilities benefit from being around uh, their non-disabled peers because they, they learn, right? If the child is having a difficult time in speech, the last thing we want to do is take them out of an environment in which everyone is speaking the way, you know, speaking correctly without maybe that impediment or without, you know, the struggle that they're having so that they they can learn from hearing the speech being, you know, expressed correctly. And if we take them out of that environment prematurely and place them in an environment where, with children that are maybe nonverbal, uh, one, they can pick up other habits that maybe they didn't have, but also their speech is going to regress because they're not hearing, you know, that the corrective speech, right? So we would want to keep them in that general education setting to the extent possible and maybe pull them out for a little bit for speech to kind of specifically work on things and then they're able to come back to that same setting and work on those um, 
to work on the speech uh, outside of their individualized speech classroom, right? So there, there definitely are parents that have that issue of, oh, well, I don't want to, I don't want to label my child or anything like that. They're and kind of it ashamed of it. Yeah. And I, I get it. It's going to be a process um, for every parent and every child is different and, and, and all of that. It really is going to be a process. But it is one that we try to emphasize when we go to those trainings as well to really let the parents know that this isn't something to make your child different. This isn't something to label your child as, as an, an other. This is something to provide services so that your child does not struggle. Right. They can catch back so that, up. Exactly. So they can learn rather than continually bump up against a wall and be continually frustrated uh, because it's frustrating. It's frustrating to continue to use that example of speech. It's frustrating for anybody to not be able to effectively communicate their needs and their wants. And, and that's what we want to avoid. We want to be able to teach them and supplement them and really allow them to learn how to effectively communicate those, those, um, those wants and needs. Uh, and that's kind of what those services are going to be designed for, to do things like that, to bridge that gap, to allow them to learn just like any other child. <laughs> Even though it's a free service, do you notice that there's like in the income groups that more people come forward that want help than like lower income families? I, I would say probably so. Uh, I don't know that I have any numbers on that, but oftentimes what we do have some numbers on is generally having some kind of legal services or advocate is going to improve your chances. And that's not a self-serving thing. That's just kind of what we see from the people that, that will actually get to the process of actually suing the schools or filing compliance complaints like I had discussed a little bit mm -hmm. more. Oftentimes in the lower income brackets, they're going to be have less access to that, those types of help. They're going to have less access to the information in general, just like we. that's why we target those head starts who are, that are specifically uh, you know, income restrictive um, because I think as a general theme, yes, oftentimes the higher income brackets are going to see better results, but also have better access to information in general, then will typically lead to, you know, lesser outcomes, less early intervention, because of like you were saying, right, we, it's going to be more often that the people in the lower income bracket are going to not know um, that this help exists, or think that it maybe isn't for them, or they're going to accept the answer of the school when they say, oh, I think my child is having some learning problems, and they say, no, he's fine. They might be more willing to assume that, you know, not all of them, but we find that that often the case when we are going to do these presentations that this is the first time they've heard these things, whereas that's not always going to be the case elsewhere. So do you have anything else for us today, Nick? So just to roundabout, actually remembered something last minute. Um, so I believe IDEA is from the 90s, um, but it is integrated from laws that were in place in the 1970s. So that. So around that time, the idea of the thing that I'm talking about now would have been absolutely official in 1990. So it's it's not terribly old in that sense, but there were other laws kind of associated with it that came about in the set. Uh, other than that, I, I, if there's no other questions, I don't think I have anything else for you. Well, thank you so much. You shared so much information with us and our listeners today. Yeah, and we really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to share that because... You know, like you said, they just don't have access to this information. And I think getting it out there is super important. Mm -hmm. No, it's my pleasure. And, and thanks for, for having me on. Thank you so much, Nick. You take care. You too. I love that. 
I've been waiting to do this episode for a really long time because I feel like when they came to give the talk at the school, there was so many hands up in that room, just like questions, questions, questions. And I didn't even know what an IEP was before I went into this. I was filling out paperwork when I enrolled Zoe in school and I'm like, what's an IEP? She doesn't have that. So no, you know, but now having the information about it, I love that I now have the tools to assess it the right way if I do need it for one of my children so yeah that's I mean and then yeah just knowing that it exists is so yeah I think it's it's really really informative to know that it is a free service and by law we have the right to provide our children with this amazing tool you know so I hope you guys enjoyed all of that yeah and keep it in mind you know keep a lookout for your kids and yeah. talk to your school be involved because they could be totally you know seem normal at home i don't know did you watch in the virgin this season i <laughs> i just started watching i think i'm on episode 10 or 11 right now i have i put this new thing on my fire stick i gotta tell you about after okay. this <laughs> but anyways um yeah i'm catching up he, I just got to the part where they took him in to get assessed where he has ADHD. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a, I'm on that episode. So it's, um, yeah, it's kind of like the Jane and yeah. Raphael are mm-hmm. like, no, I can't. Not our Not child. Uh-huh. So, yeah. yeah. You just never know. Yeah. Just, they're, the kids are so different when they're at school than when they're at home with you. Yeah, and early intervention is super important. And I have a couple of um, Luna's old teachers. They um, The site that my children were enrolled in, it got shut down. So they now work at the regional center. So I'm going to reach out to them and see if they're willing to come on to do an episode about the regional center because that's the earliest intervention where you can go and get help if your children aren't in early head start or head start so it's kind of the step before it but yeah hopefully we can get them on to talk about that just always keep an eye out for what milestones your kids are hitting Mm -hmm. and yeah you gotta stay on top of those and i feel like there's so many people that i know where i'm like well didn't your pediatrician like talk to you about this they're like no I don't know. Like they're yeah. behind on their like visits, and I'm just like, man, like it's really it. mm-hmm. <laughs> Like I get it. Like not everybody has insurance, but I mean, still like. But there's so many, you know, programs. service programs we can apply for when we don't have the financial mm-hmm. means to do it. Like there's really no excuse when it comes to our children. Yeah, for sure. Well, Vanessa, you tell them what to do. Stay moody, guys. Moody Mommies. Moody Mommies. Moody Mommies podcast.